Hi, I'm Amanda, and it is what it is. Welcome back to It Is What It Is. I'm still Amanda, still your host, and it's been a few weeks, so let me go ahead and catch up on what's been going on in my life. I uh, I have always been someone who likes routines, and at the same time, <laughs> I struggle to stick with them, especially when it comes to doing the things that I know will, will fill my cup and make me feel better, uh, or just make me feel good in general. And... You know, it's the things that are the hardest to get myself to do that, uh, that help the most. And that's really frustrating. You know, things like journaling or moving my body or going to bed at a decent time. But I'm aware of it now, which means I can do something about it. And I wanted to make this easier for myself because... Sometimes I know that I need to do something, but I'm kind of paralyzed by indecision. I will say to myself, or I could do that all day. So I uh, started working on this list of things that I know make me feel good. And it's from easy things like washing my face or taking a bath to the harder things like decluttering something or asking for help. So I have the list started in a note on my phone for easy access, but I also plan to make it a page in my bullet journal to make it fun and pretty. And along with that, I've thought about why it is that it's so hard to take care of myself. I've got some limiting beliefs that tie to this behavior. Uh, The first one being that my needs don't matter. And the second one is that I don't deserve to feel good. So where do these come from? you know, I have, I have some ideas, but it's uh, less important about, or for me to understand why I have those beliefs and more important for me to decide what I want to do about it now. And um, being aware of and changing the ways that it's affecting my life now. So sometimes I think about things and decide that there's not really anything I want to do about it at the moment. And that's totally cool. I don't have to dive into fix it mode right away. Instead, I can just connect with those parts of me that feel that way and try to figure out what it is that they really need. Um, And not, not just to feel the feelings behind those limiting beliefs and acknowledge the parts of me that feel that way, but also to figure out how I would like to feel moving forward and how I can cultivate more of the feelings that I want to feel. And so, um, to help with this, I've gone back to doing something I used to do a lot. I, uh, it was really helpful, kind of similar to the, the future self journal that I've talked about on here before, but, um, really just at its most basic level, it's keeping, making one promise to myself a day and keeping that promise. And I saw, um, a TikTok recently where the girl was saying, when you're doing this, if it's hard for you to, you know, make the promise in the morning and by the end of the day, you're like, oh shit, I have to get that thing done. Cause I promised. Um, if you decide you want a cup of tea and you're walking to the kitchen already say to yourself, either out loud or in your head, like I'm going to make myself a cup of tea. And then when you do that, your brain is like, oh, she actually did it. Cool. Um, and so I've gone back to doing this within the last week. Last Saturday, I went to yoga at a vineyard. Um, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't have anybody go with me. It was just me. And uh, I really, getting there was pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. So once I was there, 
I tried to sort of keep the momentum of that. And uh, I had on this like matching yoga set with, uh, you know, like the workout leggings and the sports bra, but I had a shirt over it. And when I got there, I took the shirt off. Um, because if anybody there was spending time worrying about what my body looks like, they're kind of missing the point of yoga. <laughs> so there's that. And also I wanted to challenge myself to not think about what my body looks like or what other people think about it and uh, really commit to moving it in a way that felt good to me. And if there was something that I couldn't do or something I couldn't hold as long as everybody else did, I was really um, conscious of not making myself feel like shit about that. Like, okay, that doesn't feel good for me or, okay, I can't, I can't do this like that. So what can I do instead? And sometimes that just involved me sitting there breathing with my eyes closed. Sometimes uh, I know like the go-to for yoga is child's pose, but I have a belly and uh, I have, you know, the, the yoga mat is not really that cushy. And if there was concrete in this case right under it, so it hurts my knees. And I don't know, child's pose at this point in my life is just not actually comfortable for me. So anyway, that was a long tangent about uh, moving my body in that moment, ways that felt good to me, even if I wasn't doing what everybody else was doing. So that was last Saturday. And uh, Sunday, I folded all the laundry and put it away. Monday, I cleaned the floors, which um, those, that's part of my list is cleaning. My self-care list is cleaning because I always feel better when I have a clean space. Um, Wednesday and Thursday, I painted. Friday, I took care of some things that I've uh, been sort of procrastinating for a while. And then today is Saturday. And my promise was to record this episode. So here we are. So that's where I'm at. And I could go on about this some more, but I want to get into what this episode is really about. So today I'm going to talk about the reasons why I left my nearly eight year career as a probation officer. And before I do that, I'm going to switch it up today. Um, rather than do a book poll, I have something else to share that is both relevant and profound. Um, that came from TikTok, believe it or not. So I was scrolling the other night, as I do, and I came across something that really moved me. And it was this clip of the Australian comedian Hannah Gadsby. hope I'm pronouncing that right. And I'm not certain if this was part of one of her specials or if it was from something else, but she starts off by saying that she has been labeled as a man-hater. She said that she truly doesn't hate men, but she is afraid of them. Trigger warning, she does go on to... Um, talk about some of her traumatic experiences. So just a heads up for that. She, uh, she goes on to say that it was a man who sexually abused her as a child and a man who physically assaulted her as a teenager and two men who raped her when she was in her early 20s. And she says that she's telling the audience this not so that they will see her as a victim, but uh, because she's not a victim, but rather she's telling them this because her story has value. And the rest of this is a direct quote from her. To be rendered powerless does not destroy your humanity. Resilience is your humanity. The only people who lose their humanity are those who believe they have the right to render another human being powerless. They are the weak. To yield and to not break, that is incredible strength. You destroy the woman, you destroy the path she represents. I will not allow my story to be destroyed. What I would have done to have heard a story like mine, not for blame, not for reputation, not for money, not for power, but to feel less alone, to feel connected. I want my story to be heard because ironically, I think Picasso is right. I believe we could paint a better world if we learned to see it from all perspectives, as many perspectives as we possibly could because diversity is strength. Difference is a teacher. Fear difference, learn nothing. That is why I do this podcast. My story has value. And I've spent so many years feeling so alone, feeling like no one else had the experiences that I had. And if they did, they weren't talking about it. So neither should I. And I've spent many years feeling like I have nothing of value to contribute and I'm better off silent and in the background. But my story has value. My path has been unique and joyful and devastating 
and thrilling and fucked up and bright and so much more. And so thank you to Hannah for your words, because many times I think about this podcast and feel like no one wants to hear what I have to say. Um, But I think that a lot of that is part of my conditioning. My story has value. My resilience is my humanity. So thank you to those of you who continue to show up and witness it. And for all the guests I've had so far, thank you for letting me witness yours. I, uh, I really can't express how much it means to me. All right, so moving on from the sap. Before I get into the reasons why I left my career, I want to give some backstory. So I have a uh, bachelor's in justice studies with a minor in criminal justice from JMU. I graduated from there in December of 2013. And shortly after the new year of 2014, I broke up with the dude that I thought was the dude, and he most definitely was not the dude. And after that ended, I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, I was working at Outback. I spent almost a year applying for every job, being rejected by pretty much every single one of them. Um, I actually had a super embarrassing moment. I actually had an interview and I, you know, I did my research as I do before I go. So I know things about the company and, um, apparently I misunderstood something and I, I remember sitting in front of this panel of people and I don't remember what the the question was, but I do remember I felt pretty confident in my answer and I could tell by all of their faces and some snickering that like, I was, I was way off base with whatever I said. Anyway, uh, I was about to give up and I got hired with the Department of Public Safety in North Carolina as a probation and parole officer. And during that time, I supervised every supervision level except for low risk, um, low level offenders. Before I left there, I was a gang officer, I was a gang investigator, and I was supervising all the high risk, high need people, most of them being validated gang members. And so then my ex-husband and I moved to Virginia to be closer to family, and I got a job with Prince George County local probation. So essentially, I went from state level to county level probation. And uh, local or county level probation was more so first-time offenders, low-level offenders. And I wasn't supervising anyone that was released from prison, only jail releases and jail diversions. And uh, the other main difference between North Carolina and Virginia was that in Virginia, we also had pretrial supervision. So people who are out on bond being supervised under certain conditions while their case was pending trial. And let me just tell you, there are a lot of people out on bond that probably shouldn't be, uh, especially during COVID. It was rare that they kept anybody. Um, just a just a continuing scary thought, but I digress. Let's get into some of the reasons, shall we? Um, one of the reasons is uh, certainly not unavoidable, but it has to do with where the probation officer is sort of stationed in this entire scenario from someone either going to trial or, or taking a plea deal that uh, orders them to probation. Um, and there's a lot that happens before someone would be sitting across from me at my desk. And I mean, nine and a half times out of 10, um, someone would come in for their first appointment, which involved me getting all their information, explaining what it is, like, these are your conditions, this is what you have to do, um, giving them a place to do community service if they had to do that, referring them for substance abuse if they had to do that. And uh, God, if I had a dollar for every time I told someone one of their conditions and they seemed surprised or angry or upset, um, especially drug testing, uh, and especially in Virginia. So, you know, they would come to me and, and they feel blindsided. They feel like, I didn't know this is what I was signing up for. And really that's on the attorney for not explaining everything in detail. That's what attorneys are supposed to do. But uh, that sort of lack of giving them that information meant that by the time they came to see me, 
they were angry and I was the one on the other side to be angry at. And uh, I think most people were able to see that it wasn't our fault. (laughs) We had the piece of paper that was signed before we even knew who they were, but um, it really, it made it difficult to help and encourage someone um, and, and establish that, you know, rapport with them when the interaction starts off that way. It's, it's a negative experience for them from the get-go. And uh, it's also really hard to develop that sort of relationship with, uh, in Virginia, we call them clients. In North Carolina, we call them offenders. But it's difficult to establish that relationship when someone feels as though their liberty is in your hands. And that was more so true in North Carolina I could make an arrest on the spot for a probation violation as long as my supervisor approved it. But in Virginia, everything had to be requested and it had to be approved by the judge. And that took a lot of time, far too much time, if you ask me. But um, I was only reporting on the violations and making the request for some sort of action. Um, so it's uh, it's really hard to be effective when the interaction starts off that way and when they feel like you can just snap your fingers and the police are going to come arrest them. Um, And it's, it's just, it's just hard to develop any sort of rapport on that kind of foundation. And, um, I got to a place where I wanted to help people. I've never stopped wanting to help people, but I don't want to have anything to do with their freedom, whether it's actually making the arrest or making the request. Um, I would really prefer to be out of that because that was um, really hard, especially in North Carolina when I would make those arrests because sometimes those would happen in their house and I would try to be, you know, based on the, the person's demeanor, Uh, if they had kids, I'd be like, let's not do this in here. (laughs) Like, let's, we don't need them to see this, you know, let's go outside. I'll cuff you out there. Um, so your kids don't have to see this. And, uh, it's just rough. It was really rough. And, um, there would be, you know, those professional relationships that I'd established and progress was being made. Because, you know, part of this is that, yeah, they have to follow the court order. They have to do the things that they that they are required to do. But you also want them to just improve in their life generally, because the whole point is be on probation rather than going to jail or be on probation after you're released from prison so that you don't continue to get caught up in the system. And uh, it just, I would have relationships established And then, you know, I would have to request a violation. I didn't have a choice. That was my job. And then they would come into my office. They'd be arrested in my office. And everything that was built just shattered back to square one. Um, So that was hard. And it was hard to be the, uh, the outlet for frustration when people who were involved with this person's case before I ever knew them failed them. They didn't give them all the information. They didn't explain things to them in a way that they could understand it. They didn't give them an opportunity to ask questions. They didn't answer their phone calls, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah. Um, the second one is was more of an issue in North Carolina, but one of the standard conditions of probation in North Carolina is a warrantless search. And in Virginia, that has to be specifically ordered, but North Carolina, standard condition of probation. And there are search requirements for people based on their supervision level, especially for the people that I supervised in North Carolina. Um, So depending on that risk level, it could be once a month, it could be uh, every 60 days, every 90 days. And this, we had to do this, like we had to check off that box and go do that search and, um, So the problem is, though, really, 
is that local law enforcement, police departments, sheriff's office, it wasn't uncommon for them to tag along on these searches under the guise of, we're here to support you, here for, you know, um, the, the first the first level of defense is officer presence. So to have more officers present, but, um, (coughs) excuse me, they would tag along on these searches and then take advantage of probation officers to search without a warrant, to search, uh, you know, people that they had been, whatever. I don't, I don't know their reasons and I never really asked, but, um, it was frustrating, number one, because I don't feel like that's fair to the person. Um, if we go and do our search and we find something, then we'll get them involved. But um, I also think that it further undermines that professional relationship between the probation officer and the offender. If you if you happen to have some Joe Blow cop with you, um, Cause this, this wasn't just that they would show up with us. Like they would search with us and that wasn't supposed to be happening. Um, but when you only have two, two, three probation officers, like, what are you going to do? And, and law enforcement doesn't really respect probation officers, um, as an extension of law enforcement, even though in North Carolina, I had a badge, I had to qualify with a weapon. I carried that weapon. I wore the bulletproof vest, like, we certainly didn't have the same training, but we both had the power of arrest. Um, it just, there was, there was never really that respect. And it was, it was sort of have, have the relationships with the probation officers so that if you need something from them, you know who to call, you know? And that was just fucked up. It's fucked up for several reasons. Um, the next reason the next thing is that um, there's there's a lot of behind the scene work that goes into getting to the point where you do a probation violation, especially in Virginia. Um, and, and they were handled different ways in the states and at the different levels. Um, but generally, you want to do what you can to address things in-house. So an example of that might be if someone missed their appointment. Okay, well, you're going to come see me every two weeks instead of once a month until you get a couple visits under your belt and show me that you're going to show up and then we'll go back to once a month. Or if they come in and test positive for something the first time, refer them to treatment. So the automatic response for most things is not to do a violation. Um. And so there would be a lot of that, you know, in-house sort of diversion, if you will. And by the time it got to the point to do a violation, they would get back in court and nine times out of 10, the violation would just be dismissed. And I heard this so many times in Virginia, especially that the probation, probation violation was just a vehicle to get that person back into court. And that's not true. It's not like a letter that says, Hey, just so you know, this person violated, just wanted you to be aware. It's, it's a new law violation. Um, and they were just being dismissed. And so it felt like a whole lot of work was going into, into a case. And it got to the point where a violation had to be requested just for it to be continued for months and months and ultimately dismissed. And in, in, after the violation is issued, we're sending reports to the court. We're giving them updates. This is what ha- has happened since the violation was issued. Um, and things would get worse and they would still dismiss it. You know, it's very frustrating. And uh, I don't know, maybe last year, I'm not 100% sure, but there were some law changes in Virginia that severely limited punishments for probation violations. So... The first violation, um, almost regardless of what it was, no jail time could be um, ordered. The second one, almost regardless of the violation, 
uh, 14 days in jail was the most that they could get. And these, you know, sometimes these people had 10 year sentences of, you know, 10 years of suspended time hanging over their head. Um, and I've seen cases in court where the person um, absconded supervision, they were MIA in the wind and they get picked up two years later and it was only their second violation. So you can only give them 14 days. Uh, you know, I know that people go through things and circumstances change and sometimes it can be hard to get in touch with a probation officer, but uh, to be gone for years and, and at no point borrow a cell phone or ask for a ride up to the probation office, like uh, for years to go by and, and have there be pretty much no consequence. That's also very frustrating. Um, it, it felt, especially in Virginia, like there was this, you know, great responsibility. It didn't just feel like it. There was a great responsibility to handle these cases correctly and, and, um, try to help people get back on track and meet their goals. And, um, but it didn't really feel like there was anything we could actually do if things weren't going the way they were supposed to, if the, if the court order wasn't being um, followed. And I mean, that gets very disheartening to put a whole bunch of work into something for nothing is very disheartening. <laughs> um, another reason is that it just got to be far too stressful, especially in North Carolina, and especially as attitudes towards law enforcement started to shift and uh, I'm certainly not saying that that shift is not uh, warranted, because I think in a lot of ways it is. Um, there's some shady people out there, you know. But when you have probation officers out there, um, you know, with minimal training and, uh, you know, a bachelor's degree does not prepare you for for the things you need to know in, in at being a probation officer. In fact, I didn't really know what probation was until I, until I started doing the job. I, I vaguely remember a mention of it in a class, but not even a, a corrections class or a probation class. Um, but we were essentially armed social workers. And when you have the badge and the, and the vest and the gun, people assume that you are part of the problem. And uh, especially with, with the type of people that I was supervising, um, truly the worst of the worst in, in, as far as criminal records and um, behavior while on probation and things like that, uh, it just got... I, it got to the point where, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to come home at the end of the day, especially those days that I had to be out in the field and doing home visits and doing searches. Like, you never know. You never know. Um, I, I have two more. I have mentioned before um the whole situation with my most recent job and how we had a director uh who was a, a raging narcissist and was evidenced doing several very illegal and unethical things and she was able to walk away with her reputation and her six-figure retirement intact and like this was she was retaliatory against her employees she kept a list in her cabinet of it had, it had a bunch of names. I think by the time we found it, after she left, it had like 70 something names and she had highlighted like who quit and who was fired. And um, like she was keeping track of the people she ran off. <laughs> it, like there's, there's so much more to the story, but uh, I ended up getting caught up in her bullshit. I ended up being part of her mean girl posse for a little while. And uh, 
ultimately I ended up seeing the light and I filed a formal complaint against her and just, just the way that the whole thing was handled, um, was incredibly disappointing. And, you know, I, I, the first time I went to go talk to the county administrator and the HR director about this, like I was in tears, um, which was embarrassing, but like, I was, I was very upset at the way that I was being treated at the way that other people were being treated. And, uh, she got the chance to just walk away. And I just, I never really bounced back from that. Um, I felt very unsupported. I felt very, uh, unimportant. And, uh, there was, there was a point where I was regularly, regularly providing updates to HR about what she was doing. Like when COVID first hit, she refused to wear a mask. Uh, and I, you know, I have asthma, I'm immunocompromised. We had a couple other people in the office that were immunocompromised and she just wouldn't do it. And, um, it, there's, there was a whole, it was a whole bunch of things, but like, they were asking me for additional information. They were telling me that they were going to reach out to former employees and talk to them and, and that this, don't worry, we're going to handle this and we have your back and everything's going to be okay. And uh, it was actually Columbus Day weekend or Columbus Day in 20, 2020. No, 21. Was it 21? No, it was 20. It doesn't matter. We were off for Columbus Day and she sent an email to everyone like, that she was leaving. And she said that, I hope, I hope some of you, uh, have a nice life basically is what she said. And I knew that I wasn't some of those people that she wanted to have a nice life. Um, yeah, I just, I never really came back from that. And, uh, it, it was extremely difficult to work there specifically after that. Um, and the last thing was, just the lack of consistency. Um, I can say with confidence that each local probation office in Virginia operates under the same set of guidelines, but they're doing things very differently, especially in the office that I worked in. That that previous director, She Devil, she had us doing all kinds of things that were beyond the scope of our position. Um, just a tremendous amount of work and the expectation that you stay until it's done and um but then being questioned why did you stay late and just just a mess and uh you know once she left even after we had a new director in place there was there was this expectation that we were going to do all of these things and the courts didn't know we weren't actually supposed to be doing them and um, you know, the judges, the Commonwealth attorneys, like they just come to expect this from our office. They didn't realize this is not the way this is actually supposed to be done. And so it's, it's hard when they have that expectation of, well, probation is going to do all these things. Um, and it, it's hard, it's hard to unravel that, you know? So it was that it was, uh, the lack of consistency in handling probation violations. Uh, you could have two seemingly similar situations with a, two people with very similar records, very similar uh, history of charges and things like that, two totally different outcomes. Uh, someone gets a slap on the wrist, they get a second try, the other person is now a felon. Like it just, it, you never knew what was gonna happen. There was no predicting what was going to happen. Um, there was no consistency in what the expectations were, both internally and externally. And I, I can't tell you how many times that I was told to do something, um, or I, I was told that I was doing something incorrectly, and I was just doing it the way I was trained to do it. And uh, I mean, that happened so many times. Um, I was trained to do it that way. I was never told that was the wrong way to do it. I had things being approved by supervisors. Why are you doing it this way? Like, 
I'm doing it the way that I was, I was trained to do it. Um, it's, it was just exhausting to work in a place where you feel like the expectations are constantly changing without notice, without reason. And, um, one of the, one of the bigger issues with all of this is that if the shit hits the fan and someone under your supervision commits a serious crime, it's the officer who's held responsible. Um, even though the system was failing long before the case ever got into the hands of the PO. Like, for example, I had a case with a guy once and he was a model probationer. He did everything that he was supposed to do. Um, he was respectful. He was on time. Uh, you know, he did all the things. And just a few days before he was done with probation, I was made aware that he had been charged with something like 20 counts of rape and indecent liberties with a minor. And he was in his 30s and had a girlfriend that was in her teens. And what could I have possibly done <laughs> to prevent that from happening? Uh, and when this happens, when someone on your caseload commits a serious crime, it triggers a serious crime review or a serious crime report. And uh, my feedback on my serious crime report was that I should have done more worksheets with him. And we have a lot of worksheets that we could do with people. Um, but I don't remember there being one about not having romantic or sexual relations with children. Uh, still a little salty about it, not going to lie. But it's just one example about how a probation officer will get thrown under the bus when they're doing the best they can. Like, there was nothing wrong. There, there was no feedback about, like, I wasn't getting my home contacts done on time or my office visits were late or I wasn't following up on one of his conditions. Like there wasn't any of that. I did everything I was supposed to do. And really so did he, as far as his probation was concerned. Uh, it, it's just, it's very frustrating. Um, and so I've had, I've had this episode in the works for a few weeks now, and it was an idea of mine before I even left my last job. And I kept trying to make it happen, but it felt like I was forcing it. And then when I saw that TikTok I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, just the inspiration struck and the notes really started pouring out of me. And it was in that moment that I realized this episode was never really about why I left. The, the real lesson here is all the reasons why I stayed. And so I'm going to tell you some of them. Uh, number one, I was afraid, especially as time went on, that I would be um, obsolete elsewhere, ineffective. Um, you know, I felt like I had dug my heels so deep into this career path, but it was too late to be anything other than what I was. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that I was allowed to change my mind. I was raised to believe, and I, and I think this is really a societal thing too, that like, you know, you see your commitments through and you choose your career and that's your career and you climb the chain of command and, and that until you retire. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't think I was allowed to change my mind. And again, as time went on, I felt like it was too late to change my mind that I'd have to start completely over somewhere else or, um, you know, I realize now that my, my experience as a probation officer, my experience in grad school, uh, even my experiences before I went off to college. I mean, I, I have a pretty massive skill set. I have a lot of transferable skills. I have like 15 years of customer service, service experience. I started working when I was 14. Um, so, but I couldn't really see that then. And just the more time that passed, the more I felt like I was stuck. And I didn't like being stuck. Um, I was afraid of the I told you so. I was afraid of taking a chance, doing something else, starting over somewhere else, whatever it might be. And not having that work out and hearing, like, of course that wasn't going to work. Like, you should have just stuck with what you had. You know, you had a job with job security and 
benefits and blah, blah, whatever. Like I was afraid of that. I was afraid of what other people would think about my choices. I was afraid to be the new guy. I don't like being the new guy. I don't like being in situations where uh, my lack of experience in something is, is, you know, perceived as ignorance. I don't like people thinking I'm stupid. Uh, and most of the time that shit's all in my head, but I don't like, it's like starting, it's like trying new things. You know, I don't like being in situations where I could look bad, where I could fail, where I could look stupid. Um, and I don't know. I just, I was so unhappy for so long and, and I didn't know what to do. It was, it was staying at that job was mostly a fear-based decision, a fear of failure somewhere else, a fear of being judged for leaving, a fear of, a fear of disappointing my mom, my stepdad, um, you know, not, not living up to whatever expectations, um, I didn't feel like I had that support to make any kind of transition, um, especially for my mom. I, you know, I had I had a conversation with my stepdad. This was two years ago, maybe. Um, I had two very different conversations with my parents about the same thing, and the, the after she devil left, her position came open, her director position came open, and my initial reaction to that was, okay. You know, I've been a probation officer for, I don't know, at that point, maybe five years, six years. I have a master's degree. This seems like a logical progression of my career. And at first I was like, okay, I'm going to apply for that. That sounds, that seems like the thing that I should do. And then the more I thought about it and the more I read the job description, like budgeting and meetings and expense reports and, excuse me, we'll burp there. Uh, especially being a director of a criminal justice agency, like there's a, there's a certain level of ass kissing. I'm, I'm, I'm sure this happens other places too, but there's a, a certain level of, of ass kissing and, and appeasing and um, because really the authority in the situation is, is a judge and you have to do what the judge says. <laughs> like, it's just how it is. So uh, just anyway, so the more I, th I thought about this, I was like, I don't want to do any of this. Like, that sounds fucking miserable. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. And uh, at that point, what I really wanted to do was focus more on my art and doing my craft shows and um, earning income that way. And I, I wasn't ready to leave my job. Uh, but I, but I did want to put more of my time and energy into my art. And the conversation I had with my stepdad, I really wish that I remember. He told me a story and it was a really good story about a conversation that he had with someone, uh, some sort of mentor. But ultimately what I got out of that conversation or what I remember of that conversation is uh, he, he, well, he ultimately told me like, whatever you choose to do is like, that's up to you. And I, I guess he'd had a similar situation where he ended up making a career shift that everybody told him was crazy, um, except for this one person that he supported. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to tell the story because I, I don't like, I genuinely don't remember all the details of it. But that was the gist: is that he, he did something, and a lot of the people in his, his life were like, "What are you doing?" And, uh, and he was successful in that, and it paid off, and. The conversation I had with my mom was different. And I can see now that it was probably mostly coming from a place of concern. At least I hope it was. But uh, I expressed what I what I just said here that 
I did not want to be the director of a criminal justice agency. I was not going to apply for that job. And I wanted to put more time and energy into my art. And I, I used to want, my goals used to be to go on to get my PhD and to teach. Uh, that's what my mom did. I wanted to be like my mom. And uh, that that is the path that I thought I was going to take for quite some time. And essentially when I told her this, that this was not what I wanted to do, and what I wanted to do instead, um, she told me, you know, pointed out the lack of security in earning income from art, especially in a COVID economy. She she pointed out how she opened a business with her um, her passion, which is quilting, and and that didn't work out, and. Um, that I didn't know the ins and outs of a business plan and she, she can show me mine because it's massive and um, there's so much to it and so many things I don't know. And like, uh, she asked me if, if I was a liar or a fraud when I said that I wanted to get my PhD and teach and I wasn't lying at the time. That's what I wanted, but I changed my mind. I didn't know I was allowed to change my mind, but I did. And it felt wrong to change my mind. And, and, and I, I having that conversation with her, I left that feeling like I was wrong for coming to that conclusion for myself. And it's sad to think about it now because that could have been a big opportunity for us because yeah, you know, she doesn't have that quilt shop anymore, but, um, we could have had a conversation about it. She could have, she could have showed me her business plan. She could have helped me make one for myself. She could have, you know, told, these are the things I wish I knew before I started a business. And um, it just, even, even if the thing you wish you knew before you started a business was don't do it. Cause it's not going to work out. Like I just felt very squashed and uh, that was really disappointing. It's still disappointing. Um, and it's interesting that I got very different feedback from both of my parents and I did not apply for that position, but I also really didn't put too much more energy into my art. Um, there are a lot of other things I could have been doing and I wasn't doing them and I wasn't consistent. And I, um, at this point in, in time, that's not really a part of my life. Um, but I'm getting off track here. I want to, uh, I want to wrap all, all of this up on a positive note and say that, uh, I'm still, first of all, I'm still sort of picking apart the reasons why I stayed, why, I, why I left all that. But what I want to leave you with is, is one of the reasons that I stayed for as long as I did is because there truly was never a dull moment. <laughs> and just the stories that I could tell, I could write a book. Um, and so I want to sort of on the fly, give, give some, give some stories, uh, again, without providing any names or details or anything, but, um, how about some of the some of the excuses that I heard for positive drug screens? I had um, this was this was actually not one of mine, but someone else told me they heard this that they were told um, the person switched up their dog shampoo, and I think it was either meth or cocaine that they had tested positive for. And like, if you are washing your dog with shampoo that contains cocaine or meth. First of all, where'd you get it? Second of all, is your dog okay? Third of all, I don't believe you. <laughs> uh, there was a guy that said he had bed bugs and basically he believed that the bed bugs had cocaine in their system and when they bit him, the cocaine got into his, his system. Um, I had someone who told me they were wearing Oh, I was wearing this shirt the last time I used cocaine, is what they said. Uh, as if, you know, there was residue that rubbed off on their skin and, and seeped into their system, and that's why they tested positive. Um, which, like, 
which really doesn't help you because either way you're admitting at some point you used cocaine. <laughs> um, let's see what else. I had someone test positive for alcohol and told me that they had lime juice in their refrigerator and they must have kept it in there for too long and they knew it tasted a little funny when they took a sip. Uh, that same person told me they must have tested positive for alcohol because they ha- because they had red wine vinegar on their salad. Um, let's see. I had... Uh, this was not a reason for testing positive, but the, the person who I was supervising uh, was on for a possession of uh, cocaine, I think. And part of the intake for a probation appointment, you know, that first initial appointment is like, okay, so usually what I would say is like, tell me, tell me how you ended up here on the other, you know, sitting at my desk in here with me uh, to get the story about what happened to try and get more information, you know, who are they spending time with and things like that. Anyway, he told me that he was at a party and uh, the cops showed up and everybody was scrambling and he ended up putting on a pair of pants that was not his and there was drugs in the pants. And he was walking away from the house and got stopped by an officer and they searched him and found drugs that were not him or did not belong to him. So, you know, my question there is what kind of party were you at? where you weren't wearing pants uh, and that other people also weren't wearing pants. <laughs> I guess, I guess I really didn't want to know in that situation. Um, let's see. What are, what are some other good stories? Um, I had an older gentleman who was still apparently very active in his fraternity, uh, so active that he was still going to frat parties. And he told me the reason that he was positive for cocaine is because some girl did a line off of his dick. And that's not how that works. (laughs) Uh, Like maybe that happened, but the cocaine did not seep through again. Like cocaine on your skin is not like oh oh god (laughs) like uh it's just you gotta you gotta give props for the creativity honestly um let's see trying to think of some other stories especially like out in the field north carolina days uh very long story short i was brand new, (laughs) a very new officer. And I had very limited experience in the field. And so I had someone with me, another officer with me, like a mentor. And we went to this person's house and it was a very low level offender, standard home, home visit. Um, Actually, it was the initial home visit where I had to go into the house and sort of get the layout and where do you sleep and let me see your room and whatever where are the exits, all that good stuff. So we went to do that. And this person answered the door with a rifle in their hand. And uh, I don't think that rifle was meant for me. There was there was certainly more to the story here. But long story short, it's 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 another standard condition of probation not to possess weapons. Um, And I had to arrest her. But I didn't know what to do about the gun. My mentor didn't know what to do about the gun. So I had her cuffed. My mentor went outside to go call a supervisor to ask what to do. And this girl hopped up out of her chair, ran into the other room, slammed the door. Uh, So I'm thinking there's another gun and she's going to get it. And um, there is a funny part of the story. This part is stressful, but there is a funny part. So I'm, I'm yelling, you know, come out, come out, come out. And uh, she does come out, but her hands are no longer behind her back. And the cuff, she has one cuff on her wrist, but the other one is dangling down her arm. And she pushes past me. She runs out the door, pushes past my mentor, takes off running and uh, was spraying her pepper spray, which is ineffective when someone is not facing you. 
And what she ended up doing was pepper spraying herself. So we had to stop pursuing this girl. And I had to go inside and get her some water to flush out her eyeballs. And uh, it, it just... <laughs> and I'm again, I'm a new officer. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and someone just got out of their handcuffs and ran away from me. I'm concerned that now I'm going to get in trouble. I may get fired. Uh, but my mentor pepper sprayed herself in the eyes. <sighs> um, I'm trying to think of what else. There aren't any more funny stories necessarily coming to mind, but um, I guess the last thing I want to say, I know I said this is the last thing, but this really is the last thing, is that uh, certainly there was never a dull moment. And the job could be very exciting, at times even entertaining. Uh, and, you know, not at the expense of another human being, but just Sometimes people say some really funny things and sometimes people do some really, th really funny things. <laughs> and, uh, but beyond that, I, I believe that there were moments that I, where I made an impact and it may have been a small moment. Uh, it may have been just an office visit where I took a few extra minutes to let the person talk and listen to what they had to say. And that's not something they're used to having in their life. And there were moments like that. There were moments where I felt like, okay, maybe I have not changed this person's entire life, but perhaps I planted a seed. And uh, those, those moments, though few and far between, um, kept me going, encouraged me to keep going. And, uh, but really all of the other things made it, made it to where I couldn't just stay for that. I couldn't just stay for, um, you know, I, I, I had some really great people that I worked with. Uh, I couldn't stay for them. I couldn't stay for the, the moments where I felt like I made an impact and I couldn't stay for the moments where things got exciting or something funny happened or whatever. Um, it was, it was exhausting. It was not good for my mental health. It was, uh, just when I left, I was just so done. I was so done. I was so ready to go. And, uh, I, I appreciate the time that I spent as a probation officer. I certainly learned a lot, um, not just about being a probation officer, but a lot about life. I learned a lot about myself. Um, and so that, that experience is, is certainly valuable to me. And I don't know that I would do anything differently, but uh, I, am, I am ready to move on to something else, to use those transferable skills and transfer them elsewhere. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's what I got for you today. This episode feels like it was a little bit scrambly to me, but could just be me. Uh, it feels like every two weeks is what I can commit to right now. So occasionally there may be an episode more often and uh, occasionally there might be some less often, but my, my goal and my intention is every two weeks. And, uh, I appreciate again, those of you who continue to listen and support me in this. I appreciate Jess Walker who did the cover art. I appreciate Doug Halliday who did the music. And if you could, I would greatly appreciate a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I will see you next time. Bye.